Well, it is Christmas time, and so we are going to start a new series uh, from now until the end of December. We're going to look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to uh, turn to John chapter 1. If you uh, uh, don't have a Bible with you, you can find this on the Bible in front of you, in the, in the chair in front of you on page 886. And we've entitled this series, God Moved In, and I uh, look forward to looking at these beautiful opening verses. I want to begin by sharing a story that happened not long ago. Uh, myself and a number of our pastoral interns were invited to a meeting up at Metrotown Public Library. And this meeting uh, was uh, arranged by one of the immigration societies here in the city. And we were invited to come and tell people what Willingdon Church was all about and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Now, we also knew that they had invited a number of other faiths as well uh, to also come and explain what they believe and to invite people to attend their synagogue or their mosque or their temple. But we went because it was a great opportunity to share the hope and the life that we have through Jesus. And in fact, uh, one of our pastoral interns did that and he did a fantastic job. But what we didn't know uh, is that the organizers of this event had another agenda. And their agenda was that they wanted us after this meeting to, uh, to get together and to agree that all religions are basically the same. And so after the presentations were done, they uh, broke us up into little circles and they said, and we want you to sit around and, and talk about how all religions lead to the same God. Oh. Uh, so uh, the, the, uh, we sat in this little group. The man beside me uh, started out, he was very passionate and he said, well, look, this is obviously the case. God is like the trunk of a tree. And all of the religions are like all these different branches of the tree. But all of these lead back to the same God. Well, and other people had a chance to share. And then myself and the other pastoral interns had our opportunity. And as gently and as clearly as we could, we explained that not all religions are the same, that they don't lead to the same God, that there are, in fact, profound differences between the various religions and they can't all be right, because by their very nature, they exclude one another. And you know, for we who are followers of, of, of Jesus, who are Christians, the very center of our faith rests on this very important question. And that question is this, who is Jesus? Because you see, how you answer that question makes all the difference in the world. In fact, the answer to that question is what sets us and our faith apart from every other faith in the world. And because the answer to that question is so important, it has been hotly debated throughout the centuries. I mean, even in Jesus' day, when he first began his public ministry, the Jewish leaders of the day totally rejected Jesus. Even though the Old Testament points to Jesus and prophecies all over the place point that Jesus was the Messiah, if you ask the Jewish leaders, who is Jesus? Their response would have been that Jesus is a fake and a fraud. Now, others have also tried to speak into that question. About 250 years after Jesus walked on the earth, a man named Arius came along. And, and Arius said, you want to know who Jesus is? I'll tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is a God. He is a, a kind of half God, half man, created by God to be a bridge between God and humanity. And in fact, this view is still held today by, uh, in various forms by such groups as the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. But then even later, in 600 AD, uh, Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, said, oh, I'll tell you who the answer is to this question, who is Jesus? Jesus was a prophet, uh, like Moses or like Elijah. And in fact, uh, Muslims all over the world today would tell you that Jesus was a prophet. 
Still later, at the beginning of the 20th century, 1900 years after Jesus walked on the earth, uh, liberal theologians like Rudolf Bultmann said, oh, I'll tell you the answer to that question. Jesus was a social revolutionary. He was this peasant rabbi who came into the world and wanted to change the system in which people lived. And in fact, many people today still hold that view. For them, Jesus is a great teacher, a social revolutionary, much like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or anyone else who came and tried to bring good changes to the world. So there are a wide variety of answers to this question, who is Jesus? And they are and can be continually debated. But for those of us who call ourselves Christian, we would hold a very different understanding of who Jesus is. And our, our, our understanding comes not from the speculation of those who lived thousands or even hundreds of years before Jesus. Rather, our understanding of who Jesus is comes from those who knew him personally. And of course, this makes sense. I mean, if you want to know who someone is, you need to talk to someone who knows that person. If you've ever uh, followed the life of a, of a great statesman or a brilliant artist and you watch from a distance... You see, and they do all kinds of amazing things, and you admire them. But if you ever read a biography, and that biographer has talked to someone who knows them up close, they'll say that those people did amazing and brilliant things, but they also had some very real flaws. And of course, we know this ourselves, don't we? I mean, from a distance, we see someone, we say, wow, that person is amazing. Then we get to know them, and maybe they become a roommate. Maybe we end up marrying them. And if you ask us now, we'll say, of course, there's some really beautiful things about that person, but they have some real flaws. Now we really know them. So that's why if you really want to know who Jesus is, we need to listen to the testimony of those who knew him personally. And one of the best friends that Jesus had was a man named John. John, of course, was Jesus' disciples. And John lived with Jesus day and night for over three years. So he knew Jesus. I mean, he saw everything. He saw Jesus when he was happy. He saw Jesus when he was really upset. He saw Jesus when he was on fire and he was, he was interacting with people and, and, and teaching and changing lives. And he saw Jesus when he was so exhausted that he fell asleep in the bottom of a boat, didn't even know there was a major storm going on. He saw Jesus' uh, relationship with his family. He watched as he interacted with the religious leaders. He saw how he spoke to the disciples when no one else was around. I mean, he saw it all. He saw Jesus in front of great crowds and he saw Jesus in his most private, intimate moments. And now, now 50 years later, he writes this gospel. And by the way, 50 years is about the time that most historians feel is necessary to obtain an objective look at the events that have happened in the past. And now he's going to write this gospel to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Who was this man? What was he really, really like? Of course, by this time, uh, he's nearing the end of his life. And so now is his opportunity to actually set the record straight. So, who does he say Jesus is? Well, uh, we want to read the first five verses of this chapter. And you need to know that right off the bat, he is speaking of Jesus. This is what John says about who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and, and, light, and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So, those are some pretty remarkable words. I mean, this old man who spent part of his youth with Jesus after all these years and with the benefit of hindsight and the wisdom of age begins his answer to this question, who is Jesus? By making some of the boldest, most incredible statements that have ever been made about anyone who has ever walked on the face of the earth. And he says, do you want to know what I saw and what I heard and what I touched and what I experienced regarding Jesus? Because I'll tell you, because I was there. He says, look, if you want to understand Jesus, you need to go back to the beginning. And by beginning, he doesn't mean back to Jesus' birth. He doesn't even mean back to the beginning of the world. He says, you need to go back before that, before there was anything, before there was time or space. And he says, in the beginning, before anything else existed, there was the word. And of course, he is speaking of Jesus. If you look at verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in verse 17, he explains who that was. He says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John says, you want to know who Jesus was? Well, in the beginning, before anything else existed, Jesus existed, and Jesus is the Word. Now the question is, what does he mean, Jesus is the Word? Well, when he writes this, he uses a Greek word. The word is logos. And that word had huge meaning both for the Greeks in his day and for the Jews. For the Greeks in Jesus' day, this idea of logos came out of Greek philosophy, About 600 years before Jesus walked on the earth, there was a uh, famous Greek philosopher named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus made this statement. He said, it is impossible to uh, step back into the same river twice. In other words, what he meant is, if you walk and you step into a river, and then you step out, and you step back in again, the water has flowed by. It's now a new river. And he and his fellow philosophers said, this is a picture of life. Life is constantly changing. Everything is constantly changing. They said, if that's the case, why is it that the whole thing doesn't just descend into utter chaos? What is it that that keeps the world together? What organizes it? What kind of gives it all the, 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 the stickiness that it has so it all functions in such an amazingly orderly way? And they said, well, there must be a divine reason. They called it a divine word. And that became known as logos. And that this concept that there was a logos, a divine word that held the world together, that sustained it, that guided it, became so common in the Greek world that they spoke about it in their day the way we speak about evolution or the theory of uh, atomic, the atomic theory. In fact, it was so prevalent that uh, years later, uh, the philosopher, the uh, Plato, who lived after Heraclitus and before Jesus, turned to a group of philosophers at Athens and he said these words, It may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. And now John writes. And he says, you you know that one that you've been looking for, that one that explains how everything exists and how it all holds together and gives reason and meaning to it all? The logos, you know that one that you've been looking for? I know who he is. I met him. And his name is Jesus. When John writes that Jesus was the word, he wrote to the Greeks that they might know that Jesus is the one who holds it all together. Now, to the Jewish people, this idea of the word had a different meaning. Their understanding of the word came out of the Old Testament understanding. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, the writers, when they speak of the word of God, the Logos, it always is in connection with God's powerful work in God's creating, in God's revealing himself, and in God's uh, deliverance of his people. In other words, the word, the Logos, always revealed God and, and was how God made things happen. Now, the most obvious example of that is in Genesis chapter 1, where it describes how God created the world. You know that time and time again, it says, and God said, and it was so, right? God said, let there be light, and it was so. God said, let there be water and dry land, and it was so. And the fact of the matter is, it was through his spoken word that God created the world. But it was also through his word that he revealed himself all through the Old Testament to prophet after prophet. The Bible records, and the word of the Lord came to this prophet or to that prophet. And then that prophet revealed, this is who God is. This is what God says. So God reveals himself through his word. But then there are also times in the Bible where it speaks of God bringing deliverance to his people through his word. For example, look at Psalm 107, verse 20. This is what it says. He, that is God, sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So, in the Old Testament, the word of God, the Logos, was God's self-expression of who he was. He said, this is who I am. You can see it through creation, through revelation, and through salvation. And now John, now John's going to pick up on this. And he, this is the point that he wants to make. He, he wants his first response to this question, who is Jesus, is this. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is. In other words, if you want to really know who God is, if you want to really understand what he's all about and how he thinks and what he values and the way he acts, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the word. He is the ultimate expression of who God is. And in fact, Jesus said the same thing. John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. See, too often people think, when they read the Old Testament, they think the God of the Old Testament is mean and vindictive and, and judgmental, and that the Jesus of the New Testament is just all gentle and kind and, 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 and love. But in fact, if you read carefully, Jesus was pretty tough. And he often spoke of, of hell and condemnation. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll see that time and time again, God's heart bled for his people and he showed them mercy and, and grace when really all they deserved was wrath and punishment. They are the same. And John says, if you want to know what, what God is really like, you look at Jesus. And, and more than that, he says, here's why you can know that Jesus is what God is like. Because Jesus is actually God himself. Look back to verse 1. This is what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John says, not only was Jesus with God in the beginning, but Jesus is God. Now think about this for a moment. I mean, here's John. John knew Jesus. John lived with Jesus day and night for three years. He saw everything that Jesus did. And John says, in everything that he did, in everything that he said, in the way he acted, in the things that he, uh, the prophecies that he fulfilled, and above all in his death and his resurrection, I can tell you that Jesus is God. It's a remarkable statement from someone who saw it all. 
And yet for many, that's a tough one for them to swallow. I mean, the Jehovah's Witness, for example, they try to downplay that. They say, ah, you know, Jesus did, uh, John didn't mean that Jesus was God. He meant that Jesus was a God. In fact, they try to prove their point by going back to the Greek. They say, well, in, in Greek, in this opening sentence, there isn't a definite article before the word God. In other words, they say that it should read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. And they were right about the fact that there is no definite article before the word God there. The fact of the matter is there is no definite article before any of the words God that John uses in this opening chapter because that's simply how Greek is written. Now, if those who hold to that position were to be consistent in how they translated the Bible, they would have to say a God every time the word God came up. So for instance, in verse 6, where it says there was a man sent from God, they would have to translate it, there was man sent from a God. And in verse 12, where it says, um, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They would have to translate that to become children of a God. But they don't translate it that way, and they won't. And in fact, that, that translation that they have of John 1.1 in their version is simply wrong. And there is no reputable Greek scholar anywhere that has, come and, that has come to their defense. You see, here's the point. John was very, very clear. Jesus is God. But notice what he doesn't say uh, about, uh, or what, that while he says that Jesus is God, he also says that Jesus was with God. So he, here he's saying that Jesus isn't just another side of God. He isn't just another uh, form of God. He says Jesus is a separate person from God, and yet he is God. <laughs> not, not long ago, I was putting my seven-year-old daughter uh, to bed, and uh, uh, every night uh, I tuck her in, and then I say a prayer, and then she's supposed to say her prayers. But every time after I say my prayer, she's like, uh, Daddy, before I pray, I have one question. She always has a question, because that means she can stay up later. And uh, so I say, okay. And the, uh, the other night she said to me, Daddy, I thought Jesus was God. I said, uh-huh. Well, but Daddy, sometimes you pray to God our Father and sometimes you pray to Jesus. Daddy, are there two gods? I look, I'm like, it's nine o'clock at night and I'm gonna try and explain the Trinity to my seven-year-old daughter. <laughs> so I said, oh, sweetheart, let me explain. And I begin talking to her for a while and after a while she interrupts me. And this is a girl who doesn't wanna go to bed. She's like, Daddy, how old were you when you understood the Trinity? <laughs> um, you know, I said, oh, maybe 12 or 13, I began to understand. Okay, Daddy, that's enough. Let's pray. And then she was ready for bed. But you know, this idea, this doctrine of the Trinity is probably one of the most difficult doctrines to understand, and yet it is central to what we believe as Christians. When we speak of the Trinity, we mean that there is one and only one God who has eternally existed and is fully expressed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, that's Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And we say that each member of the Godhead is equally God, and each is eternally God, and each is fully God. So this isn't three gods, but rather three persons in one Godhead. And of course, that isn't always easy to wrap our mind around. And yet there is no denying that this is what God has revealed to us about who he is through his word, through the Logos. And many people struggle with this idea. 
And certainly those who are followers of Judaism and Islam have extreme challenges with this idea. But the concept itself, well, kind of challenging to grasp, is actually incredibly beautiful. And really, it's no more difficult to believe than to believe that God has always existed or to believe that everything that we see was created out of a big bang that materialized out of nothing. Now, there's so much more that could be said about the Trinity. And in fact, as John continues to write through the gospel, he reveals more and more about what that's all about. But right now, his point is simply this, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God because Jesus is God. If you want to know who God is and what he is like, you need to look to Jesus. It's the first point that John makes when he answers this question, who is Jesus? But then in verse three, he goes on to make this statement. He says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. John says, look around. I mean, whatever you can see, whatever you can touch, taste, feel, even whatever you can study, if, if it's here, it was created by Jesus. I mean, the, the billions of stars in the galaxy, Jesus made those. The tiniest subatomic particle, that was by, Jesus made that. Look at your hand, look at how intricate it is, look at what it can do and how amazing it is. He says, you know what? Jesus designed that. Think of the great ecosystems that cover vast swaths of the earth, the power and the beauty of nature. Jesus created it. If you can see it, study it, learn it, find beauty in it, or take pleasure in it, it's all because of Jesus. John says, here's the second thing you need to know about Jesus. Jesus is not only the word of God, he is also the creator of the world. That is, he is the agent of creation. And you might be saying, okay, okay, but I thought God created the world. I mean, that's what it says in Genesis chapter 1. And you'd be right. And this brings us back to the doctrine of the Trinity. God, the three persons of the Godhead, were involved in creation. God the Father, as we've already talked about, spoke the word into being. And as John has just explained, Jesus is the word. So God the Father is the source of creation, and Jesus was the agent. He was the one who did the creating. And God the Holy Spirit, he finished and he breathed life into the creation. So of course God created the world. But the role, listen, listen to the role that Jesus played. The Apostle Paul explains it in his letter to the church in Colossae. Speaking of Jesus, he says this, all things were created through him and for him. Now, now, here's why this is so important. Because this gives meaning to our world and to the life that we live in. You see, one of the questions that all of humanity has struggled with through all the ages is this question. Why? Why are we here? What's this all about? And what about my own life? Is there any significance? Is there any value to this life that I live? You know, one of the challenges for those who hold to the belief that everything that we see is the result of a big bang and, and, and the result of a random chance that has gone on for millions and millions of years is that in the end, that doesn't give a lot of meaning and purpose to an individual's life. I mean, if you hold that view... Uh, in the end, uh, everything that you do in your life, the way that you live, what comes after you is really just a matter of chance. It's just part of this cosmic accident that happens to be us here and now. But, but if Jesus is the creator of the world, if he's the one who made it and designed it and put it into motion, that gives meaning and purpose to what we have and what happens in this life. 
than the things that happen in your life and mine. The good things and the bad things are not the result of chance or karma or fate. Rather, they are part of the working of a God who created everything and who is intimately and deeply interested in the details of your life and in my life and has a purpose for everything that happens. John tells us that Jesus is the creator and because of that, there is meaning for our lives. Now, just because Jesus created the world doesn't mean that everything here is wonderful, does it? I mean, you just have to look around and you see uh, that our world is a mess. I mean, this week again, terrorism, war and evil, greed, hatred, corruption, racism, uh, human trafficking. It doesn't take much to see that our world is a huge mess. And sometimes people look at that and they say, they, they look at the creation, they say, wow. I mean, the science is undeniable. There is some kind of intelligent design behind all this. But they, they say, maybe God just created it all and then he, he, he gave it a good spin and then he just stepped back. And he, he, we can't know him and he doesn't interfere in what's happening here. And he's just watching from a distance. But not according to John. You know, John doesn't deny that the world is a mess. I'm not sure anyone can deny that. But he was certain that it wasn't because God had simply created the world and then abandoned it. In fact, the third response that he has to this question, who is Jesus, is that Jesus is the answer that God has sent to a world that is in deep, deep trouble. Listen to what he says in verses four and five. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John says, God hasn't abandoned this world. Jesus didn't create it, and then when it got all messy, he just backed off and said, look, you made your bed, now you lie in it. Not at all. Instead, not only did he create the world, but because he loves it, he would never dream of abandoning it. Instead, he enters in it. He, he, he engages it in the most personal of way. And so in this dark, dark, dark world that we live in, he humbled himself and became one of us so that he might give us hope and life and direction for how to live. John tells us, and this is his third point, here's what he says, Jesus is the light of the world. He is the one who has come to bring salvation. And from this point on in his gospel, he tells story after story after story about how Jesus came and how he is life and light and salvation for all who are lost in darkness and who are all who are looking for a God who will bring them uh, into salvation. In fact, uh, if you have uh, never read the gospel of John or if it's been a long time, I want to encourage you this December you get a copy of it and just read a couple of stories every day and see what John says about who Jesus is. I want to tell you just one story uh, from the, uh, John's gospel. It's found in John chapter 9. And uh, John tells this story of how one day uh, Jesus and the disciples were walking and they came to a man who had been blind since birth. And one of the disciples said, Jesus, whose fault is it this man's blind? Is it his? His sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, Neither. And he goes on to explain that, that, that this hard thing that has happened in this man's life was actually so that God would receive glory through what Jesus was about to do in his life. And then Jesus says these words. He says, I am the light of the world. In other words, I am the one who has come to bring light and salvation and hope to those who are blind and lost in darkness. 
Then he spits on the ground and he makes that into, into mud. He puts it on the man's eyes and he says, go to this certain pool, wash off your eyes. And the man does. He opens his eyes and he can see. And then John tells this amazing story of what happens to this poor guy next. I mean, he's just been healed. He's so excited. He goes home. And when he gets home, his neighbors get into an argument over them. Some say, wow, he's healed. And others say, no, no, that, that's not him. That's just a guy who looks like him. First guy say, no, no, I'm pretty sure it's him. Other guys say, no, no, he's different. And they have this argument back and forth. He's standing right there. He's saying, hey, uh, uh, excuse me, hey. Finally gets the word in edgewise. He says, guys. It's me. I said, what? Well, how did this happen? And he says, I met Jesus and he changed my life. Well, that's not good enough for them. So they take him to see the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were like the, the thought police. They, they didn't run the government, but they were the ones who decided what was acceptable to think and what was acceptable to do and what wasn't acceptable to think and what wasn't acceptable to do. And they were kind of like the final authority on what was true and what wasn't. So these guys bring this man, they kind of push him up to the Pharisees and say, tell him, tell him. So he, he tells them, he says, I met Jesus. He, he, he healed me, I can see again. And the Pharisees break into an argument. Some say, huh, there must be something to this Jesus. But other Pharisees say, not a chance. There is nothing possibly good that can come from Jesus. And they get into a huge argument in front of him. And finally they turn to him. They say, who do you think Jesus is? He says, I think he's a prophet. Oh, I can't be. They say, maybe he's faking it. So they call his parents. They say, is this your son? Yep. Was he born blind? Yep. Well, how can he see now? He said, I don't know. We weren't there. Ask him. He's an adult. So they ask him again. They say, how can this be? Because we know that Jesus is a fake and a fraud. And he says to them, look, you believe what you want. All I can tell you is that before I met Jesus, I was blind. And after I met him, I can see. He totally changed my life. And, and, and they, they won't accept it. They refuse to accept the very clear evidence that is right before their eyes. So they say, tell us again. Well, by now, he's getting a little frustrated. He says, I'll tell you again because I think you want to become his followers. Well, that makes him mad. They say, oh, no, we're the disciples of Moses. We already know the answer to everything. And Jesus definitely doesn't fit into our worldview. Now he's mad. The, the, the man who could see is mad. He's like, really? I mean, really? You, this happened in my life. I was blind. I can see. These are the facts. It, it, only God would do that kind of a thing in someone's life. So this man must be from God. And now they're faced with just the facts that they cannot deny. And so how do they respond when the facts are so clear? Huh? And here I paraphrase, as I have all along. Uh, forgive me, but this is basically what they said. They turned and said, well, you're an idiot. We're the educated ones, and we know how everyone should think. So clearly, you're wrong. Get out. And they kicked him out. And John tells us that Jesus heard about all this. And I don't know, it doesn't say, but I, I, I bet he chuckled a little bit. He went and found this guy. And, 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 and like I said, I paraphrase the story to this point. But now I want to read to you what Jesus said to him when he met him. Verses 35 of chapter 9 is what it says. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. 
And he worshiped him. And then Jesus says these words in verse 39. He says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. You see, Jesus came into this dark world so that those who are lost and who are, uh, who are blind might see the light. And not everyone wants to see it. But for those who do, he came that we might know that there is a good and a loving God who created all of this and who created you and I. And not only did he create us, but he's so interested in a relationship with us that he came and revealed himself to us in a way that we could totally understand and totally relate to. He came as one of us. And, and in spite of the brokenness of this world, and not just the brokenness that's out there, but the brokenness in our own lives, he enters into our hearts and into our lives, and he brings healing and life and light. And that's why Christmas is such a rich time for we who are followers of Jesus. It's not just a, a, a celebration of family and friends and gifts and lights and Christmas carols. It's all that, but for us, it is so much more. For us, Christmas is the celebration of Emmanuel, God himself right here with us. You know, when we, when we celebrate that little baby in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes, he is none other than God himself come in the flesh to reveal himself to us that we might know who he is. The one who lay in the, in the manger on that night, surrounded by shepherds and by the barn animals was actually the one who created it all and who loves his creation so much that he entered in. That he might bring salvation, that he might bring sight to those who are weary of wandering around in darkness. I mean, we celebrate Christmas because Jesus is the light of the world. That's what gives meaning to our lives and that's what gives meaning to the season. And that is why we worship him. Listen, if you're here today and you don't yet know who Jesus is, if you haven't settled on the uh, answer to that question, I want to invite you to do that this very season. In fact, right after the service, I want to invite you to head out these doors right here uh, to the Welcome Center across the way. If it's busy there, you can come down the hall to the chapel. And I want to challenge you, invite you to sign up for a course called Discovering Jesus. It's just six weeks on a Sunday morning at 10, 11.30 with a few other people. And the opportunity is for you to ask and to answer this question. Who is Jesus? And I promise you, if you see who Jesus is in the Bible, it will change your life. We who know Jesus and follow Jesus, we celebrate this Christmas because he is the word. He is the creator and he is, is the one who brings the light to the world. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Well, let's pray. Our God and Father, we come to you this morning, and God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus into this world. Father, into a world that you love so much that Jesus was willing to die for the sins of the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God, thank you. And thank you, God, that you revealed to us who you are, that we don't have to guess or make you up or make you in our image or any of those things, that you showed us who you are through Jesus. And Father, we thank you that this season again, our hearts focus on this very fact and that we have joy and life and meaning because of it. 
And so, God, I pray for each of us, Lord, uh, that you would be with us. We pray, Father, for our friends and our family, many who don't know this hope yet, this joy. Father, this season, may you give us opportunities, just quietly here and there, Father, and the courage to point people to Jesus, to the word, to the light and the life of the world. Father, may you uh, be glorified through us as we live our lives to follow after him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Have a good day.